You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Kyle Logan, titled Love in the New Year, a standalone message. For more info, visit creekside.org. Okay, a couple questions for you before we start off. And first service really amazed me. They were like right with it, and they called out things. So I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. What are five things we all have but we don't get to choose them. Parents, family, siblings, your name, where you were born, your body type. Okay, we got about five things there. I, okay, What's, here's the next question. What is your last name, and do you like it? It's, it's amazing because I have asked, like, I, four out of five people that I ask, they almost always say, oh, yeah, it's all right, but I wish I was born, like, with the name Samson Strongarms, or, you know, or Delilah McPrettyface. I don't know. Um, we, we tend to really want these other names for ourselves, and uh, you guys probably don't know this. I, you guys know me as Kyle Logan, my last name is not actually Logan. Yeah, I'm a criminal and I'm on the run. Um, No, 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 it's simply this. It's that when I turned 15, 16 years old, I realized that my dad really didn't have a heavy investment in my life. And I thought, you know, I don't really want to carry this name. I want to kind of create my own wake. I want to be my own man and all that stuff. So I began to go by my middle name, which was Logan. So Kyle Logan. Now, for those of you who don't know and want to know, my last name is Cardoza. It's a Portuguese last name. I know there's plenty of Portuguese people here, so I'm sure you like that. Thanks, Phyllis. Uh, uh, Yeah, there's at least one. So, um, and and here's the deal. I don't have a problem with, with that last name or any of those things. It just simply was that I wanted to create my own self, essentially. I wanted to, I wanted to be who I wanted to be. And, and so, yeah, you know, the truth is, it wasn't that I necessarily disliked my last name. I just wanted a different one. I wanted a different history, and I wanted a different mantle, not just for myself, but for my kids. So I started going by Kyle Logan. Now, here's, here's another question, and this is a, a really good one. And, you know, if your family's here, ignore the question. But um, if you're comfortable calling out, if you could be born into any family, what would it be? The Grinch? The, the Grinch? Oh, Rich. I thought she said the Grinch. I was like... <laughs> okay, anybody else? Anyone else? The Gates family, anyone? Or no? Here's why I ask it. Uh, I, I asked our students this question because... Like I said, I spoke on a little bit of this, but I really wanted to expand it. I asked them this question, and, and one set of students, they're probably, actually, they're probably here. One set of students said, oh, I, I want to be born into the Macaulay family. There you are. There you are. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, Macaulay's great family. You know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be born into my friend's family. There were more kids. Everybody was happier. Mom made bread, you know. <laughs> she did. She made this amazing sourdough bread, and, and, and my mom only kind of made other stuff. Like mac and cheese. 
uh, mac and cheese. So anyways, uh, you know, and then, and then the girl right next to that, that girl said, oh, well, I would be a Kardashian. Kardashian. Kardashian, I'm sorry. I'd be a Kardashian. And, um, and I, I said, okay, those are about the same thing, you know. <laughs> Macaulay's and the Kardashians, that's about the same. Okay, so that's the question. Now, for those of us who, you know, could play this game all day and really do have specific people we wish we were born to, I used to wish that I was Sting's son. You guys know who Sting is. And then I found out that he's not going to leave his kids any money, and I thought that was pretty rude. So I don't want to be Sting's son anymore. But, but when I was a kid, I used to really wish that I had been born into somebody else's family. Now, I do want to ask a couple more questions. Here's a really fun one. This is a, this is a puzzler, okay? I'm going to call out some names, and I want you to tell me what they all have in common. Snow White, Tarzan, Batman, Boba Fett, Huckleberry Finn, John Sawyer, Elsa from Frozen, Daredevil, Hercules, Frodo Baggins, Cosette, Cinderella, Harry Potter, Klaus, Sonny, and Violet Baudelaire, for anybody who's interested in um, a series of unfortunate events it's on Netflix now. It's probably going to be pretty good. I haven't seen it yet, but um, anybody know what they have in common? They are fictional, and that's important. They are orphans. Every single, that's right, every single character on that list is an orphan. Now, what's really interesting is they're fantasy characters, which means somebody who was writing the narrative of their lives chose to make them orphans, chose to have that be part of their story. Because there's something to that, right? There's like a grittiness in the upbringing that causes them to go on and do great things or be great things. It's kind of like a recipe for a hero's story to not have a place of origin or not have a family of origin. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Well, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to talk about one word in particular. I'm going to briefly touch on it now, and then I'm going to define it later. And the word is storge, S-T-O-R-G-E. If you know what it is, don't tell your neighbor. Just let me define it later on. Storge is the word, okay? Now, let's look really quickly at some family stories here in the Bible, because Within this list, there's all sorts of different circumstances. Of course, Batman's parents were killed. Boba Fett is a clone, got no family. Frodo Baggins, same situation, raised by his uncle Bilbo Baggins, for those of you who didn't know. And then Huckleberry Finn and John Sawyer. It's just sort of a fascinating formula that, that authors have. So let's look at the book, of course, authored by the creator of the universe, essentially. And let's look at the, the character lines of some people within it. Specifically, I want to start with Moses. If, you are, uh, if you've got your Bible, Moses, uh, we're going to look in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, um, page 48, in this version. <laughs> and uh, we're going to look a little at, a, at a little bit of his story, okay? And I'm actually going to start at the tail end of, of verse 1. I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary. The Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians, and they were captive, and they were responsible for the creation of all sorts of different aspects of their society. They were building and kind of doing backbreaking labor. Now, the really important thing to understand here is what do you think happens when one society or one group of people rules over another, but the slaves begin to outnumber the masters? That's a recipe for trouble, isn't it? 
And so Pharaoh and his advisors notice that the Israelites are, are just, they're beginning to outnumber the Egyptians. And they come up with this plan to kill the, the, any of the boys born under a certain age, but to let every girl live. I'll read it to you, chapter uh, 1, verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, speaking about the Israelites, and the people increased and became even more numerous, talking about the Israelites. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. But then Pharaoh gave the order to all his people that every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now that's a really, really terrifying circumstance, and we're going to look not just at that, we're going to look at the narrative around it, the story of Moses. In chapter 2, it starts this way, Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So I want you to just imagine this with me. This mother is unable to keep her child. This is a heartbreaking situation. And she's faced with the fact uh, that she could either see her child taken from her and killed, or she could release her child with the chance that he might live, that someone might take mercy on him. That is an incredible and difficult task. And what we need to see when we look at this mental picture is the fact that she chooses to give him a chance, let him go. She, she places uh, the, this basket coated in tar and pitch among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. But she doesn't stay and watch. She can't. I'm imagining her heart is broken. I don't know what the actual circumstance was. We can't know that. But as a parent, I'm thinking I couldn't watch this happen and I would have to walk away. But it's interesting that his little sister stays and watches what would happen to him. Moses' sister stood. Okay, now I do want to address one issue because if you're thinking this, I want to have an answer for it. Uh, there were no crocodiles or hippos in this part of the Nile. <laughs> well, it's a valid question and somebody asked, you know, the other time when we talked about this. Here's the deal. Um, crocodiles are really lazy. They like to be moved by the water and not have to do much work. So they would have been in the moving open water areas. They like their food to come to them. Whereas if you place this baby in the reeds, nothing's there. There's not animals or seeking prey there. So heart's at ease, okay? Now, here, <laughs> relatively at ease because he's still a baby in the Nile, all right? It's not exactly the safest situation. Here's what happens. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Pharaoh, of course, is the king of Egypt. So this is the king of their captors, Egypt. His daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This was one of the Hebrew babies, she said, knowing the circumstance. She put two and two together. Then catch this. His sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? That's a smart girl. Because think about it. At this point in time, you have mercy on a child. Okay, that's great. Problem is, someone still has to nurse him. There wasn't formula back then. There's a lot of responsibility for the life of this child that was directly linked to the parent to provide. And so 
even with mercy in their hearts, it's the sister's offer. Oh, oh, I could take him, find a, a mother to nurse him. So what does she do? Uh, Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go. And the girl went and got the baby's mother, Moses' mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, now, there's a couple heart-wrenching moments within this. One, this mother places her child in the reeds, right, in the Nile. That's got to be hard. And then this glimmer of hope when her daughter comes back to her and says, the Pharaoh's daughter found the baby, and she wants you to nurse it. But here's the really hard part. She has to give him back. I don't know what's worse, seeing your baby go and not know what happens, or to have your child brought back to you and get to raise them and bond with them and smile with them and laugh with them and tickle them and then one day give that child over. You don't even get to name your child. Somebody else does. And then Moses is raised in the palace, essentially as royalty. Now, for those of you who don't know, the story of Moses is filled with twists and turns. And inevitably, he ends up far removed from Egypt. But God calls him back to Egypt to free the people of God. Here's what I want you to see. It's this. It's that even if there is bloodshed and battle, God has a plan and a purpose beyond the bloodshed, beyond the battle. These are not ideal circumstances. Children are at risk. His very life, this is the deepest wound, losing your loved ones, especially a child. And yet in the midst of all of this terror, God provides a path for him. I like to say that it's beyond the bloodshed, there's a plan and path for all of us to make it out alive. Whether that path is as as wide as the Nile or as thin as whatever path you're on right now, God has a plan and a purpose so that you can make it out alive of whatever you're going through. Because it could be debt, it could be pain, it could be something terminal, it could be life or family problems. But even in the most dire circumstances, God is taking horrible things and he's, he's, he's redeeming them. Revelation says that he makes all things new. It's just an amazing story. That's God's hand over Moses, an adopted son in the Bible. Let's look at Esther. Esther is, of course, in the book of Esther, page 422. And what, what, what I'm going to do is I'll give you a little backstory and then I'll read directly from Esther chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Here's the backstory. Again, the Israelites are enslaved. This time it's in Babylon. Now, one thing you need to know about God is that he loves and favors his children no matter where they are. And this is another instance in which God takes his captive sons and daughters and gives them a blessing in the middle of that. Some of you know the story of Daniel, that he and some of the other men, while they were captives, followed uh, the commandments They wouldn't eat certain meat because it was dedicated to the gods of a pagan nation. And God took care of them and raised their status to actually have authority in this foreign land. So we're looking at another instance in which the Israelites are essentially slaves of another kingdom. They're ruled over. And and here here is what is here's what happens. Here's what transpires. 
Esther chapter 2. The king, King Xerxes, the king of Babylon, um, I'm not going to be crude, but I do need to tell you the story in its entirety. The king has a little too much to drink. And he's got a party going on. And essentially, he's enshrouded by his goonies and these, you know, advisors and nobles who are also probably, um, how do we say, turnt? Is that the term? That's our modern terminology there at work. They are literally, they're, they're, they're not in their right minds. And here's what he decides. He decides that, uh, like a, a patriarchal chauvinist, he's going to have his wife come and put on a show. He says, would you come and, and dance for us? Now, ladies, everybody say, uh-uh. <laughs> really? Come on, that wasn't very convincing. Ladies, say, uh-uh. uh-uh. Thank you. So here's the deal. He, of course in a manner of, of a king in this time period where women had little rights, he, would, he just said, oh, come and, come and dance for us. And she's outraged. She's like, no, I'm not going to come. And so she publicly embarrasses him by not coming, by sending her servant, <laughs> good girl, <laughs> by sending her servant back. Now, just so you know, it doesn't really end well for her. But, <laughs> but sisters, she laid the groundwork. <laughs> Y'all are... <laughs> Now, here's what did happen. The king needs a new queen. Sorry, but that's, that's how the story goes. So it says that later when his anger subsides, later when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti, that's his queen, and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So he's gaining his sobriety and he's realizing, oh, man. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, well, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of this realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. I mean, how could it not? Of course, this isn't how we dated, you know, how we date nowadays, you know, naturally. I do want to tell you a couple of things just to help you line up your perspective. Back then, chances are, when she got married, there would have been a dowry, and she probably would not necessarily have felt all that great about the guy. So, she's kind of getting a perk and a bonus that at least it's the king, and at least she gets to have beauty treatments and live in the castle. I'm not saying that's okay. You get what I'm saying, right? trying to give you a little perspective on why this in and of itself kind of has a bit of a blessing to it. But naturally, she's hesitant and, and, and doesn't want to go along with it. What you need to know about Esther is, is this. <clears throat> when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to him, who was in charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven maids select from the king's palace and moved her and the maids into the best place in the harem. So essentially, this is God, again, pouring favor out on a faithful person within this foreign kingdom. This is God looking out for her. Now, here's what you need to know. A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, there's a couple other names there that I'm going to skip for your patience, um, um, was among those taken captive. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl was also known as Esther. She was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So all of a sudden, our perspective is broadened. This is the second time in biblical history where God 
takes a person in a position, gives them favor, rescues one from the Nile and another from slavery, moves them both into the palaces of the current kings. Are you following along here? There's something incredible about this. And not only that, both of them are adopted. They are adopted into these respective families, essentially. Now, here's what you need to know about Esther. Later on in her narrative, she is the reason why, uh, why King Xerxes spares thousands of Jews. She, in her position of power, is able to, with her, her effect on the king's heart, uh, encourage him towards mercy for these people. There's a large sort of corrupt plan at work in which um, an advisor of the king was jealous, essentially, and wanted, uh, wanted a bunch of Jews to be killed as sort of like a, his own uh, vendetta. And it's only because of her position and the love the king has for her that stops this from happening. This is two circumstances in which God takes orphans or those who are orphaned by circumstance and repurposes their life to save others. I'm sorry, my friends, but I I have a notion that you and I, we're not just going to get saved from the Nile or saved from the slavery of our lives, our pain, and our problems. We're going to get to participate in the salvation of other people. You got me? That's something really, really good. And I want to look at it with a third person, a third biblical narrative. I'm going to turn to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, there's a story of another adopted son. His name is Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 This is the birth of Jesus Christ, how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Did you guys know Jesus was adopted? Think about that for a second. A father, I'm sorry, a man about to marry a woman realizes, oh, she's pregnant. Well, that's not going to work for me. That's a disgraceful situation. That's a totally disgraceful situation. But rather than than dismantle her and character assassinate her by divorcing her, he says, you know what? I'll marry her quietly. I'll I'll divorce her privately. No one will know. And that way, harm won't befall her. Because honestly, that would have been a pretty dangerous time to be under those circumstances as a woman. But an angel comes to him and says, no, you're going to name him Jesus. This is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to work. And guess what? He does it. I mean, I guess if, you, if you're touched by an angel, then that makes a difference. I'm just saying that for me as a man, 
you know, that'd be hard if you realize, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise somebody else's son. He's a carpenter. I'm going to ply my trade. I'm going to beat boards and, and, and work with wood to provide for a child that's not mine. And it's his first child. All I'm saying is that's a kind of interesting circumstance for the son of God to come into, isn't it? And I never realized it before, but in, in a very real sense, Joseph adopted Jesus and loved him and raised him and named him. What can we learn from these narratives in the Bible? I asked you earlier about your families and, you know, what family have you been born into and all that stuff because there's a comedic element to it. You know, we could all say, oh man, boy, I sure wish, you know, I was in the Bill Gates family or whatever. I was the heir to the whatever it might be. Visions of grandeur. We all have those. And it's really easy to compare and contrast our families because the truth is there are deficiencies within us, within our families. Like I said, I didn't want to go by Cardoza because I knew, oh man, my dad didn't really do anything for me. He didn't really raise me. I don't want to continue that name. But more than that, I wanted my kids to have a new mantle. Now, here's a really interesting thing. Somebody asked me about this at the end of first service. They said, well, did you change your name legally? And I said, no. I just go by Kyle Logan. Let me tell you why. I believe very much in the whole generational, there are things that our kids inherit from us. But I am trying to recreate and really clean the slate for them because I don't want them to be like their grandparents. I'm sorry. My grandfather was a terrible guy. <laughs> I've met him once and I know that. I could Google him and look at his crimes. I want my kids to have a fresh start. And that's why I didn't change my name to Logan. I thought, you know, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold out this name. I'll go by Kyle Logan, that's fine. But I want them born into a new name. And that might be a little intense for some of you guys. And I, I know some of you get it and maybe some of you don't. But, but being born into a new name, being given a different identity than the stinking one we have to inherit sometimes on earth? Come on. You want that, don't you? I want that. Let me tell you, I think I'm a great dad, but I mess up sometimes. Oh boy, would I love it if my kids didn't inherit some of my hang-ups. I made, probably was arguably one of the, I, this is a terrible decision. Somebody's going to feel me on this, okay? I'm going to tell you this story, even to my own detriment. Here's what happened the other day. Because we all make mistakes as parents. But I'm going to just throw this one out there. My daughter is in this phase. We call it intense twos. Because we don't want her to hear us calling her terrible. Don't call your kids terrible. I think it's a bad idea. But, <clears throat> so we call her intense twos. Because when she's sweet, she's intensely sweet. When she's mean, she's intensely mean. And like, you know, have you ever had this thing with your kids where you're like, can I have a kiss? And they're like, no. <laughs> it's like brings up these little insecurities in you. You're like, what? Okay, I'll make you a sandwich. <laughs> or you say, I love you, and they say, thanks. <laughs> it, the, the struggle is real. There's insecurities there, you know, and, and, and they come to light in little ways, in strange ways like that. But you really do come to understand, wow, you know, life, I want things. There are still things, even in my wonderful little family circle, that, that aren't there, that only God can provide, only the Holy Spirit can provide. So let me tell you about one of my imperfections. Here it is. So the other day, I took my daughter on a coffee date, 
and uh, my son was taking a nap, so I took her out. And what that really means is that I take her to Starbucks, and I get a coffee, and she gets a cake pop. And so we did this whole thing and did the cake pop thing, and, and we're pulling up into the garage, and for whatever reason, she was mad, you know? They get mad sometimes, right? And she was mad, and she was crying, and I was trying to talk to her and say, honey, it's, it's okay, I'm trying to reason with her, you know, as best you can. And finally, you know, I'm, I'm one of these parents, you know, my mom always told me don't cry because there's kids in Africa, you know, <laughs> right? And you grow up as an adult, and you're like, I don't know how to deal with grief because there's kids in Africa, I don't deserve to be sad. So I, we don't raise her that way. We just tell her, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be sad. You know, go ahead, let it out. But there's a time and place, you know. Like if she's crying for a while and it's just, okay, you, you know, you, after a while we're like, do you want to cry alone in your room? You cry on your own maybe? So she was, <laughs> she was crying and I was like, okay, honey, you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to be sad. But we're going in the house and your brother's asleep. So you need to be quiet for a minute. And not working, <laughs> not working, you know, she's still going, and finally, I, I just said, babe, you need to, you, you can cry when you're upstairs, but can you, can you breathe a little bit, can you breathe it before we go upstairs, finally, I just had to go, all right, and I covered her mouth, and we walked upstairs, it was a very short walk, I felt horrible, I felt like the worst parent of all, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and she's going, <laughs> and you're, you're thinking, I'm scarring my child for life, this is what you're thinking, right? Yeah, well, somebody, thank you. Here's, here's the deal. There are these, whether or not that was a mistake, I don't, you know, I don't know. But hopefully it doesn't come back to bite me. One day when I'm old and I'm crying, she holds her hand over my mouth. <laughs> it's not going to happen. This is, uh, this is what we can take from, from these, these parenting narratives. It's simply this. I don't in my lifetime, and I haven't in my lifetime, experienced a perfect family. As great as my mom was, she was a single mom, worked really hard to provide. She had her deficiencies. My dad, I loved him till the day he passed, but he could never give me anything. I mean, he really couldn't. He couldn't give me, uh, you know, his, his affirmation didn't really mean much. Where he was in life, he had nothing to his name. I mean, there was just, there was nothing there. I loved him, and I really really genuinely loved him and spent time with him and stuff, but he could never really give me anything. There are people in my life who are great people. They're wonderful mentors. They're wonderful parts of our family. You know, at the end of the day, they've got their problems. They're going to mess up here and there. They're going to let me down. There is one thing that all of us need. Rafi said it best. Anybody know who Rafi is? Children's entertainer. I'm going to see him next at the end of this month, by the way, with my kid. It's going to be great. He said, all I need is love in my family. And uh, let me tell you, that hits hard because as a kid, I grew up in a really broken household, and I could wish all day long that I was in a different family. But you know, at the end of the day, we get what you get, you know? But let me tell you something else. Like Moses in the Nile, getting pulled out of the water, like Esther, pulled from the crowd, given favor. Like Jesus, given a father who would stay and love him and raise him and a mother who adored him. We can all be adopted into the family of God. All of us. And beyond the bloodshed of Moses' story, the uncertainty of Esther's story, and the certain 
loss that Jesus was going to experience being born on earth, there is an overarching plan. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, uh, the arc of time may be long, but it arcs towards justice. What that means is when we look at these, we look at these narratives and we go, oh my gosh, oh, it's so hard. Oh, we're, we're just sucked into these three or four paragraphs and we're going, oh, the heartbreak, oh, the trial, oh, the struggles. And that's very true. But when you zoom out on these things, you begin to see that it's not just this short timeline. It is an arc, a story that God is weaving throughout all of creation and it is bending towards justice and redemption for us. God's plan is broad, it's long, but it's timely. If you maybe need to be convinced that the love of God exists for you this morning, I'm going to just give you a couple scriptures. They won't be on the screen, so if you want to take these home with you, I just recommend you write down their locations. Galatians 4, verse 4 through 5 is one of the best ones, and I would recommend you read this whole section. It's titled Sons of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, because you are sons. God sent the son of his spirit into our hearts, and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Man, Oh boy, I wished all day long after I watched Little Orphan Annie that I had a daddy Warbucks adopt me. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I grew up really poor watching that movie, the story of Annie, how she gets adopted by this rich guy out of an orphanage. That's a beautiful story. Hey, that's what's happening with us. What if I walked in the reality of the fact that I am adopted by the God of the universe who provides endlessly throughout time for those he loves? What if I realize that in my heart I stand alongside the, the king of all kings? I don't, I, I don't need anything else. Maybe you came from a great family structure. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you're the best parent ever. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're as bad as I am. I don't know. Maybe you were a great son or a great daughter. Maybe you were a great sibling. The word storge, it's a Greek word, and it applies to love in the family sense. There's four different words that Scripture uses for love. It's probably more than that, but in the, in the Greek, there's storge, philia, eros, and agape. A lot of us are sort of familiar with agape because that's a, the most you know, Christianly, openly used term for love. It's God's love for us, and it's this all-encompassing sort of love. But storge is this familial love. And let me tell you, I've experienced it in good ways and in bad ways. But the truth is, there's a God who can pull me from the water and who can destine me for more than just slavery. But the great fact about it is that we get to participate in it. God doesn't just redeem us for our own selfish purposes. He redeems us, and then we get to watch people come to freedom and salvation through us, like Moses did, like Esther did, and by goodness, like Jesus did. Amen. Amen. Let me give you one more verse in case you just need another shot of realization that God loves you, and this is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. 
He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Listen to that. It makes him happy. To to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us this mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Wow. You could be in a number of places this morning. You maybe have experienced that love, need to be reminded of it. Maybe you haven't. Or maybe you want to, but you don't feel it. Or maybe you believe it, but you don't feel it. I don't know exactly where you're at this morning, but we're going to move towards um, a little bit of prayer here in the end. I thought about giving you a table talk thing because we do that sometimes here. Um, But I just kind of thought because of the message, I'd really rather pray over you and your lives. Here's the deal. This morning, if you want to experience the love of God, if you have been yearning for a new family, a new name, and access to things that, that we could never have in this earth, access to the perfection of heaven and love and peace and grace, I don't know about you, but right now outside of those doors in our immediate sphere of life and elsewhere, there's not a lot of peace right now. But we get to share in the peace of Jesus Christ and become participants in that peace. We get to become dealers of that peace, wielders of that peace. Maybe you want that this morning. Well, I would just, I would just encourage you that as I pray, do business of the heart with God. Say, okay, you know what? No more messing around. Lord, the gift is there. It's free. I want to take it. Just show me what that means. Move forward in that. Be, be courageous. Be brave in that. Maybe you have experienced it, but you need to know it on a deeper level at this point in life because you need it more than you ever have before. Maybe you've gone through a loss, a diagnosis, or something else. Maybe the holidays hit you like a freight train and you haven't recovered. I don't know. But the richness of God's love is available to every son and daughter and every heir of the kingdom, and that is us. Maybe this morning you already have it, but you still don't fully believe it or don't fully feel it. I'm just going to pray that God moves on you in a way that you know, that you know that you know that it's him. Sound good? All right, stand with me as I pray over you.